Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Listener, welcome back to I Was There Too. This is the show where I talk to people present in the great scenes of cinema history. But who am I? I'm Matt Gorley. I run this podcast. Today, Goldfinger, a James Bond movie. Now look, it's no secret. If you know me at all, you know I'm a huge James Bond fan. I have a podcast with Matt Meyer called James Bonding. I even own a powder blue play suit made of terry cloth that's sort of a short pant swimming pool jumper, just like Connery wears in Goldfinger. It was given to me by a listener. I didn't ask for it. Though I can't say it wasn't on my mind. My point? I don't have one. But today's film, arguably the most classic James Bond film of all time, now a Bond movie, hell, the entire franchise, is something that I have always wanted to cover on this podcast. Grab someone from the films that got their hands dirty and could tell you the real inside scoop of how the franchise works? Well, that's what I'm talking about. Today, however, a different angle, but something just as interesting. When my guest, Linda Gidley, came my way, I found out that her experience on the film of Goldfinger was more of an outsider to the franchise, and I had such a wonderful time talking to her about what it was like to go into something you had no prior familiarity with whatsoever and experience James Bond from the outside. This is 1964, and the way she found herself on this film and her experience there on the set was really worth talking about, and it's a wonderful conversation. It's the thing I love about this podcast. You can have people that truly were just there, too. But enough of my mouth. Enjoy this interview. It's comparatively short, but stay tuned for some James Bond extras that you might find interesting or you might not, depending on if you're a good person or not. Ah, I dared you morally and with judgment. Let's begin. The film Goldfinger, the year 1964. The role Pussy Galore's flying circus pilot. The actor Linda Gidley. Well, Linda Gidley, let's start with how a young woman, not even old enough to drive, ends up as one of Pussy Galore's flying circus pilots in the movie Goldfinger. How did you come about being in this film? 
Um, at the time, I was working for a model agency, and I got a phone call from the lady that owned the agency and said that she needed to place five tall, and I will quote her, well-rounded blondes <laughs> for a part in a movie. And the next point that she made was, you better go buy yourself a padded bra. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> and did you do that? I did, of course. Uh, I had to. <laughs> where, like what? I said, I was a young teenage girl. Yeah, you were what, 13 <laughs> or 14? Yes, wow. I was. And mm -hmm. how, how much modeling had you done up to that point? I had done, probably been with the agency a year, maybe two years, had done some runway modeling, some um, photography modeling. Some just at the time, back in those days, they had models that would just walk through stores and talk about what they had on and where you could get it in that particular store and that type of thing. So it was just very informal modeling, mostly. And what city and state was this in? This was in Louisville, Kentucky. Okay, when they filmed the uh, pilots there on the bluegrass field, is that right? That's correct. And it really wasn't called bluegrass field. Um, it was actually called Bowman Field. And um, they chose that because it was a private airport, and it was pretty close to Fort Knox. So I'm sure that that's why they chose Bowman Field. And how familiar were you with the James Bond films at this point? Did this mean anything to you, or you just thought of it as another job? I had no idea what it was, <laughs> none at all. Um, when I got the phone call, um, both my mom and dad were employed, and I remember I called my mom and I said, I have a modeling job tomorrow. And she said, doing what? I said, I don't know. I have to be at the airport. And it was something about gold, but I don't really know what it was, Mom. And so she said, okay. And so when my dad got home from work, of course, we told him. And he said, what time do you have to be there? I'll take you to the airport and we'll see what this is all about. And so that was about as much as I knew. I had no clue who James Bond was, knew nothing. So literally all you knew is that you had to get a padded bra before the morning yeah. of the next day. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and so you show up to the set and describe your experience there from sort of beginning to end. Take us through the day. Okay. When I showed up, um, I was ushered into like a waiting room there at the airport and some man said, here, have a seat, which I did. And he said, here, read this. And he handed me this big black book that was the script of the movie. And it said Goldfinger on it. And I thought, I wonder why he wants me to read this. And so I opened the book and thought, I don't really know what I'm doing here, <laughs> but I'll just go ahead and, and read because that's what he told me to do. So I was just sitting there reading through the script. And, of course, several of the other girls that were going to be in the movie came in as well and asked, you know, what are you doing? And I said, well, this man told me to read this, and so I'm just reading it. Shortly after that, he came back in, and he said, okay, girls, all of you stand up and turn around. And they said, okay, you'll be fine. Um, now go to costume and put on this costume. Did you read the script from beginning to end? No. Are you kidding me? No. <laughs> I just kind of glanced through it. I was a nervous wreck. I didn't even know what I was really doing there. I didn't have any idea what was going on. I was just kind of in la-la land. Yeah, and so then they <laughs> sent you off to costuming and put you in a skin-tight black flight suit, right? Oh, yes. It was – now, this is in August – we're in Kentucky. I don't know if you've ever been there, 
Um, if you're in California, you aren't real familiar with uh, heat and humidity. It was miserable weather. It was hot. It was humid. And we had on these one-piece flight suits that were black, stretchy material that were turtlenecks, long sleeves, long pants, um, with white boots and a white, real wide belt. That's right. And it was hot. (laughs) And then um, they told us who they were, which at the time I really didn't know who they were, but I believe one of the men's name, I think his name was Peter Hunt, and I think the other man, I think was Albert Broccoli, which I think maybe he directed the movies. I don't even know. Actually, yeah, so Peter Hunt would have been the editor and Albert Broccoli was the producer, but they they were like two mainstays of this whole franchise. So you met a couple of the bigwigs there. Do you remember what they were like? Um, Just pretty, I mean, they were nice, but very, you know, this is what we're going to do. I mean, they weren't somebody that you would just sit and chit chat with. Right. You know what I mean? They were just, they were nice and very businesslike. You know, this is what we're going to do and this is how we're going to do it. And so they basically told us what you're going to do is you're going to go for a ride in an airplane. You're going to get in these different airplanes that we tell you to get into. The pilot will take off. You will fly around the airfield and then they will land. And when they land, you get out of the airplane and you run forward. And that's it. Had you done much flying at that point? Oh, never. Never been in an airplane. But I thought, well, that sounds like that could be fun. How many times did you have to do it? Uh, We did it all day. So I really don't remember the exact number of times. I just know that we did it a whole lot that day. But the interesting thing was that the first time that we did it, um, they told us that they would give us a signal, you know, for the pilots when to start their airplanes and when to take off and, um, you know, and then we would land and they would tell them when to shut down the airplanes and they'd tell us, you know, when to get out of the airplane. So the first time we did it, um, we took off and landed and it was kind of fun. And after the first time they said, no, this isn't going to work because there's only supposed to be one person in the airplane and we're seeing two people in the airplanes. And because, you know, the pilot had to fly the airplane, he had to be the person that could see out. So, and they had these wigs on these pilots. I mean, they were all men pilots and they put wigs on them that were absolutely hideous looking, (laughs) but they had to look like women. So, you know, we all got a chuckle out of that. But anyway, so when we took off, they didn't want to see our heads. They just wanted to see the pilot's head. Uh So they told us, they said, now girls, you know, when we tell you, you put your head down so that we can't see you. And then once you get up in the air, you can sit up and look around. And then when you get ready to land, you have to put your head down again so that we can't see your head when you land. And so we're like, okay. Well, when we got ready, the pilot that was flying the plane that I was in kind of grabbed me by the back of the neck and just shoved my head just straight down to my knees. What? And he was like, keep your head down. And I'm like, okay. Wait, he physically <laughs> forced your head said, down? Why did you do that? And he said, they don't want to see your face. They just want to see me. And I'm like, oh, well, okay, but you didn't have to slam my head down on my knees. Anyway, wow. so we went around and then, you know, as we get up in there, he said, okay, you can sit up and look out now. And then he leaned over again and he said, you know, we're getting ready to land. And so he grabbed the back of my neck again and shoved my head back down on my knees again. 
And I looked at him and I said, next time, why don't you just tell me to put my head down and I can do it without you slamming my head down? Yeah. And what did he say to that? He said, oh, okay, I'm sorry. And I'm like, thank you. <laughs> like he never thought of that. Yeah. Like I didn't understand what it meant to put my head down and to pick my head up. You know, I, I did know that much. Even though I was young, I did understand those terms. Yeah. Anyway, so then it was time for us to land and to get out of the airplane. And of course, that was, <clears throat> excuse me, that was a little tricky because we had to open the door, get on the wing, and then jump off of it. And so that took a little practice. So we had to practice that for a long time. I remember we were just on the ground and just, you know, got on the wing, jumped down and ran forward. And we were running to absolutely nobody. In the movie, it looks like James Bond and Pussy Galore standing there waiting for us. But in reality, there was nobody. They just said, this is where you stop. Right. So when you see these pilots run up to Pussy Galore mm -hmm. later on, those are the actresses probably filmed over in England. And you guys are kind of shooting these actual flying right. and long. And so in the film, when the planes first land and one of the pilots, the one of the blonde bombshell pilots gets out and there's a close up on her, you're the one getting out of the plane directly behind her and running. Is that correct? That's correct. Well, nice job. Have I, you watched the movie? I did. I watched it this morning to, to see what you did. I looked at your work. Okay. Well, this is really funny because, and I'll tell you more to this story, but in the meantime, when my relatives all went to see the movie, they all said, oh, we knew it was you because you run so funny. <laughs> and that's how they recognized me. You so, do kind of have a bit of a special prance, if uh, you don't yes, mind me saying. yeah. Right, right. So they used to make fun of the way that I would run. <laughs> but um, anyway, it was fun. It was a lot of fun. We did it one day for a full day. And then about a week or so later, we got a phone call and said that the filming wasn't that good. I guess it was kind of a hazy day, the day that we did it the first time. So we had to go back and do it all again. But it was just only for a half a day that time. But it was the same thing, you know, the same hot weather, same costumes. But at least I was aware of what I was doing and kind of knew what it was that we were doing. And then, of course, I was really excited when I got an engraved invitation in the mail that I was invited to attend the premiere of Goldfinger in Fort Knox, Kentucky. Oh, yeah. Now, take us through that. First of all, did you have any idea when you were shooting it that you were going to be in what at the time was the biggest blockbuster and the highest grossing film when it came out? I had no clue. <laughs> and so what a surprise. What was your feeling when you found out that you were in literally one of the first blockbusters? Um. I, I just really couldn't believe it. I mean, it's like, huh, this is interesting. Well, this is something I'll be able to tell my grandchildren. You know, they'll probably enjoy it. And if I ever have children, I'll be able to tell my children and they'll get a chuckle out of it. Um, it was funny, though, because when I got the invitation, I was so excited. And so I told my mom and dad, I said, I got an engraved invitation to go to the premiere of Goldfinger in, um, down in Fort Knox. And my dad said, you aren't old enough to see that movie. Oh, no. Yes. And I said, I have to see it. I'm in it. And he said, well, I'll only let you go if your mother will go with you. And so I looked at her pleadingly and I said, Mom, you will go, won't you? And she said, sure, I'll go. So we went to Fort Knox and I was expecting it to be like the Oscars. I just knew there was going to be a red carpet, and I just knew that lights were going to be shining, and I could just see that I was going to walk on the red carpet. And I was so nervous, and I was so excited, and we 
drove to Fort Knox and we drove up to park and there was a big sign on the marquee that said, free to everybody, come see Goldfinger. (laughs) (laughs) Needless to say, I was devastated. But I thought, oh, well, that's okay. So my mom and I went in and, you know, sat down to watch the movie. And, of course, the movie came on and my mom was going, well, where are you? Where are you? And so finally I said, okay, mom, this is the part. Now watch real close. And I could actually feel myself blushing, thinking I was on the screen for hours. And I think it's like if you blink your eyes, you miss it kind of thing. But I thought I was up on that big screen for hours. You are the not the person on the show with the least amount of screen time. So you've at least got that beat. Oh, well, that's good to know. Yeah. <laughs> Were your mother or your father familiar with the James Bond films at all? Did it mean anything to them to go to a premiere like this? Um, I think my dad, he was pretty, he liked movies a lot. And so I think he was aware of James Bond movies and, you know, he was pretty excited about it, but he just felt like it would be better if my mom went with me, I guess. I don't know why he just thought maybe she needed to go instead of me. And maybe because he thought it might have some parts in it that he might be too embarrassed to be sitting there with his, you know, <laughs> teenage daughter watching these parts of the movie. And, you know, I mean, I had no clue really what the movie was about. I really didn't know that much about it until I saw it, you know. And I remember thinking, oh, I can see why Dad didn't want me to see it. I mean, they painted that girl gold. You know, and all of that kind of stuff and the love scenes and everything, which I just hadn't been exposed to. Yeah, you know, right. back in those days, kids just weren't exposed to that type of thing. Right. Did you get a new dress and everything for this? I don't think so. I, I, I don't I just don't remember getting any kind of new clothes or anything. I probably, you know, curled my hair or something. <laughs> <laughs> Were any of the other people involved with the film at this screening or mostly free to the public? It was mostly free to the public. I don't remember, except for some of the girls that were in the movie with me that were there. And they were older. Like, one of the girls actually worked with my mom. And so I would say she was probably in her 20s. You know, of course, I thought she was old, but she probably wasn't that old. Um, I think most of the girls were older than I was. You know, they were working people and had another job or they were married or whatever. But I don't really remember any really big names that were at the premiere. They may have been there, but I was just too in awe of everything else and thinking so much about myself that I really don't remember anybody else being there. (laughs) And did you end up liking the film or was it? Oh, I loved it. Yeah. As a matter of fact, every time it's on TV, when my daughter was growing up, every time it would come on TV, I'd say, oh, Jennifer, we have to watch Goldfinger. It's on so that you can see me. And so we'd watch Goldfinger. And then it finally got to the point where, Mom, don't you kind of know where it is to where we could maybe change the channel and get back to it before you come on? (laughs) You know, she got kind of tired of watching it over and over again. But I loved it. I loved the James Bond movies. I think they're great. Was it the type of thing that all your family and friends from that day forth always knew you as the girl from the James Bond movie? Um, Yeah, And a lot of them, you know, would ask me, well, well, what part did you play? And I would lie and say, oh, I was the girl that they painted gold. (laughs) And then they'd look at me and go, really? And I said, no, I'm kidding. 
I was just one of uh, one of Pussy Galore's flying circus girls. There was a myth for a long time that the girl that got painted gold died from asphyxiation. Did you ever hear that? I did hear that. And then somebody said that that wasn't true, that they left a little patch that wasn't gold so that she wouldn't die. Yeah. Yeah, but it, it was a great film. I loved it. I still love it. I like to watch it when it's on TV. I get kind of, as a matter of fact, I didn't even realize that Gary Marshall was in the movie until last night when I was watching the news and saw that he had passed away and that he had a part in Goldfinger. Yeah, he has about as much screen time as you do in that. He's one of the mob bosses that meet Goldfinger down in his little uh, map room. Yeah, I had no clue. I didn't know who that was. That's right. I didn't even realize that. I think he has one quick line. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, but it was fun. It was something, like I said, that I can tell my friends, you know, anytime anybody meets me and, you know, it's like, oh, well, is there anything about you that I need to know or anything? Sometimes I tell them about it just because I think it's fun and they're always in awe. You know, you were in a James Bond movie. I'm like, yeah, just a Bond girl. <laughs> <laughs> you are. I mean, technically, you're a Bond girl. That's a that's an that's elite right. club. And, you know, people say, "Oh, were you a star?" No, I was just a mere twinkle. <laughs> you know, if you blink your eyes, you miss me. <laughs> did you ever do any other film work? I never did. Mm-mm. When you were doing some more of your modeling work, and for instance, like working in a department store, going around modeling clothes and stuff, did you ever let it slip that you were in a Bond movie? I guess at the time, I mean, I do more now than I did then, because I guess at the time, it just, you know, it was just kind of a job to me. It was just something that I was supposed to do. And I really didn't think that it was, you know, I mean, I was in a movie and that's great, you know, but I guess I didn't realize how much people are like, man, you were in a movie, you know, even if you do have just a little small part. And I do that to people. I found out that there's a friend of mine, her husband was in the movie, The Firm as an extra. And I'm like, he was in the firm, you know, so now it makes me want to go see that movie again. Now, were you aware of the scandalous background at the time of your character and that just the name Pussy Galore and having to explain that to friends and people that knew you were in this film or that the flying circus girls were all, at least in the novel, a group of lesbians? Did you have any awareness of that at the time? I had no clue. I didn't even know what it meant if you get my drift. Yeah, when I first saw the film, I I never picked that up either. It's a little more subtle in the film. It's more more overt in the novel, but I never got it when I saw it as a boy either. Yeah, I, I had no clue. I mean, I just, I, I was just, like I said, I was young and I was just oblivious to all of that. I mean, times were different then. Yeah, I guess the the um, studio considered changing the character's name to Kitty Galore, and um, the Flying Circus was originally named the Cement Mixers. They were a little bit more tough. They were like cat burglars and that sort of thing, the women. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> I had no clue. <laughs> and, and Pussy Galore was uh, Ian Fleming's octopus's name, apparently. That's where he got it from as well. Oh, that's strange. <laughs> <laughs> I, I agree with you. He was a strange man. Oh, that, that's a lot of information that I never knew. And see, so now I can shed some more light on my story. Yeah, you have more cocktail chatter. Yes, I do. That's pretty interesting. <laughs> um, a- apparently, the director, Guy Hamilton, this is a quote of his, when the producers thought about changing the name to Kitty Galore, but the uh, director said, if you were a 10-year-old boy and knew what the name meant, you weren't a 10-year-old boy. You were a dirty little bitch. 
he said the American censor was concerned, but we got round that by inviting him and his wife out to dinner and told him we were big supporters of the Republican Party. And I guess that's how they got it by the censors eventually. Well, I do remember another thing. I remember that my dad, I've got two younger brothers, and I remember that my dad brought him over to the airport so that they could watch the filming. I guess... I don't remember if it was, I guess it was the first day that we did it, or maybe it was the second time that we did it. And they had up all of these posters around the airport, you know, that I think it said something about Pussy Galore's Flying Circus or something. Yeah, that's right. There's a big banner. I remember those posters. And my one brother asked my dad, what does that mean? <laughs> what did your dad say? And he said, uh, you don't need to worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he just didn't answer. He said, you just don't need to worry about it. I think that's probably what my parents <laughs> said to me as well. Yeah. I mean, people just didn't, you know, I mean, everything just wasn't all out there all the time like it is now. Right, right. Um, I can look back and laugh and I can, you know, remember different things that that just kind of make me laugh as to how naive I was about all of it. But um, it was it was just fun. It was fun. It was, like I said, something that I thought, well, one of these days I can tell my children, I can tell my grandchildren, and they'll go, wow, you know, my grandma was in a movie. And maybe they'd be impressed or maybe they wouldn't be. I bet they would. It's one of the biggest. And it's probably one of the most respected James Bond films there is. Really? I didn't realize yeah, that. Yeah, Goldfinger is probably the number one. If not that, it's usually the favorite on most of the lists. I think it's my favorite, but... Only because I was in it. That's what made it so great. <laughs> so tell me about your life now. What do you do? Uh, what I do now is I'm retired, which is wonderful. And um, I just do stuff that I like to do. I travel some, visit grandchildren some, have grandchildren visit us. Um, I'm a quilter. So oh. I do a lot of quilting, which I enjoy doing. And, um, you know, have a great husband that actually believe it or not, was a pilot, but not in Pussy Galore's Flying Circus. Yeah. Um, he was a pilot. And uh, <laughs> and so have you been able to tell your grandchildren the story of you being in Goldfinger? Um, I told my oldest granddaughter, my other ones, and I guess, I don't know if I've told my younger ones or not, or if they've even asked me about it. Um, my My stepdaughters know. I have two stepdaughters. They know about it. Um, and they've been told the story about it. I don't think either one of them, well, one was more impressed than the other one. I don't think the other one was that impressed with it. <laughs> and of course, my daughter heard it all of her life. So, you know, but it's just like I said, it's just kind of an interesting story to tell. And um, it, was, it was just fun. Well, thank you so much for telling me about it, Linda. It was wonderful to talk to you about it. Well, now, I do. you're welcome. And I do want to know when this will be played because I have a, a nephew that's very interested in hearing this and his brother-in-law, who actually was the one that asked me if I would do this. Yeah, I'll be sure to let you know. Okay, because I, I would just like to hear if it just sounds totally inane and ridiculous or if you decide just to cut it out altogether. This podcast <laughs> is all about being inane and ridiculous. That's the whole point. So you're in good hands. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for talking to me. Okay, thanks for calling, Matt. Bye-bye. Well, there it is, short but sweet. Thank you, Linda Gidley, and thank you, Mac Johnson, for making that interview happen. He's a listener that connected me to Linda, and if you can connect me to a guest for this show, email me at IWasThere2Pod at gmail.com, and if we're successful, if we work together, you can sit in on the interview for all I care. Hell, I'd love to have you. Now, 
Let's take a break and pay the bills, but come back for a classic I Was There Too segment I just know you're going to love. And then something special at the end. Okay, we're back. Let's get to this. Because I'm such a James Bond fan, we're going to keep the ball rolling and find out about the 007s that never were in the old I Was There Too segment favorite. That's right. There have been so many people up for the part of James Bond, I can't possibly even cover them all in this segment. In fact, the people I'm going to tell you about are really, in many ways, just the notable actors you would recognize, and it doesn't even comprise probably half of the people that were at one point either up for the role, considered for the role, offered the role, rumored for the role, although I'm going to try to throw that out as much as possible. For the most part, everyone that I'm covering in here has at least two independent sources I could find on the internet doing my best journalistic due diligence, though I can't vouch for, well, any of this. But that's not really the point. The point is James Bond. First, a primer on the actors that play James Bond officially and unofficially. The official films that we all know and love are called the Eon production films, but there was also the original Casino Royale and Never Say Never Again from the 80s, as well as a CBS teleplay drama of Casino Royale on a TV show called Climax from 1954, where the first James Bond on screen was played by the American actor Barry Nelson, who in this production was known as Jimmy Bond. Le Chief was played by Peter Lorre. You might know Barry Nelson as the uh, hotel manager from The Shining. Uh, you might also know him from just an amazing pompadour of hair. But we cast that aside. We also acknowledge that there was the satirical version of Casino Royale in 1967, where David Niven, Woody Allen, Peter Sellers all kind of had a turn as James Bond in that film. It wasn't that well received and for good reason. But let's listen. Let's leave that aside because I want to get to the heart of the matter here. Bond, James Bond. In 1962, Sean Connery plays James Bond in Dr. No through 1967 in You Only Live Twice. He bails, he's tired of the role, and in 1969, Australian George Lazenby takes over the role. Doesn't work out. So, Connery reluctantly returns for 1971's Diamonds Are Forever, but he's done. Gives all the money to charity. He'll never do another Bond movie as long as he lives. Except when he does in 1983's Never Say Never Again, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. Enter Roger Moore, who will have the longest run as James Bond from 1973 to 1985, and that's from Live and Let Die to A View to a Kill. Then he hands over the reins to Timothy Dalton, who does it for two movies, The Living Daylights and License to Kill. Then on to Pierce Brosnan in 1994, to Goldeneye, who ends in 2002 with Die Another Day, and then on to our boy Daniel Craig. Starts with Casino Royale, ends with Spectre, or will he return? At the time of this recording, nobody knows. Imagine the world of mystery and wonder we're living in. Okay, is everything clear? Let's hear about these people that almost played Bond. Some won't surprise you. Some will surprise you. Some of you are no longer listening to this podcast. But those of you that are here, I know your type, and I appreciate you. Group number one, the Connery years, first era, 1962 to 1967. Richard Burton was considered for the role, but he himself felt that the James Bond franchise was too untested a concept, and he declined. And besides, he wanted more than the producers would pay anyway. Forget it, he's out. But what about James Mason? He was offered a three-picture contract, but only agreed to do two. But he would later be selected to play the villain Hugo Drax 
in Moonraker, but the part eventually went to Michael Lonsdale in order to satisfy the requirements of an Anglo-French co-production under the 1965-79 to Film Treaty. You know that one. What's your favorite film treaty? Mine's Versailles. Also up for the first James Bond on film, Cary Grant. In fact, he was the first choice of producers Albert Broccoli and Harry Saltzman, but Cary himself, and we're on a first-name basis, felt he was too old at the time. He was 58, and besides, he only wanted to do one film. Some say his North by Northwest is its own kind of Bond film. I don't say that, but some people do. Also, Patrick McGowan. You know him from the original The Prisoner or The Bad King Edward in Braveheart, but he apparently found the role too promiscuous. Hmm, bit of a goob, McGowan. Rex Harrison was also considered, but ultimately lost out to Sean Connery, who, by the way, was confirmed as the best choice when Albert Broccoli's wife saw him in Darby O'Gill and the Little People, the Disney movie, and still thought he was just dripping with sex appeal. And finally, someone would go on to play James Bond in an unofficial 1967 adaptation of Casino Royale, David Niven. But he as well was turned down in favor of Connery, but happened to be the 007 author Ian Fleming's choice. Group 2. The Lazenby Years, or year, 1969. Michael Caine. The producers wanted Michael Caine for the role, but Caine didn't want to be typecast in spy films, having previously starred in the Ipcris Files and the two following Harry Palmer spy films. Terrence Stamp. But reportedly, his ideas for the future films felt too radical for producer Harry Saltzman. I don't know what they were, but I would like to know. And I'm imagining General Zod as James Bond and having a good time with it. In fact, I'm probably going to edit back to the recording because I'm going to take some time to just imagine General Zod as James Bond. And finally, and this might be one of the weirder ones, Dick Van Dyke, but his English accent failed to appeal to producer Albert Broccoli. I can only assume he did his Mary Poppins English accent. And then I need to take another edit break to just think about that as James Bond for a while. Group 3. The Connery Years Again, or Year Again, 1971. Clint Eastwood. But he felt Bond must be British and that Connery's portrayal of the role was too iconic. He was apparently also offered Superman. And quote, I was offered pretty good... Sorry. I was offered pretty good... Nope. I was offered pretty good money to do James Bond if I would take on the role. But to me, well, that was somebody else's gig. That's Sean's deal. Also, Burt Reynolds who felt the same sort of trepidation stepping into Connery's shoes. And Adam West shared similar sentiments. Also, Oliver Reed. But like Terrence Stamp, his ideas for the future of the films felt too radical for producer Harry Saltzman. Michael Gambone was also considered, but he himself did not feel he had good enough looks to play Bond. And in an early consideration, Timothy Dalton, who will become James Bond, but not now. Not now. He thought himself too young and did not wish to follow Connery. Will he be James Bond in the future? Yes, but also no. I'll get to that in a minute. Group 4. The Moore Years, 1973 to 85. Next up, Timothy Dalton. I got to it before a minute lapsed. Efficiency? He turned down the role for a second time because he did not like the direction the series was taken. But will this be the last of him? <laughs> I could literally... I, everybody knows no. Next up, in 1983... Right when Roger Moore was about to shoot Octopussy and Sean Connery was making the unofficial James Bond film Never Say Never Again, James Brolin was lined up for the part. He even did a screen test, 
which if you go to this episode's webpage, you can see. And he also went so far as to buy a house in London for the production, but then Roger Moore, 11th hour, agreed to return. Crisis averted. Group 5, The Dalton Years, 1987-89. to Timothy Dalton? Yes, he's James Bond. But Pierce Brosnan? Well, he was frontrunner for James Bond in The Living Daylights after Timothy Dalton could not take the part due to his commitment to the film Brenda Starr, a landmark film of cinema history. However, at the last minute, Brosnan's option to star in a further series of Remington Steel was taken up by NBC, and the producers refused to have him do both Steel and Bond at the same time. And anyway, as it turned out, in all that harangue, Dalton became freed up at just that time, and so he finally jumped into the role, which he did for two films. Next, Jurassic Park's own Sam Neill. Although the producers liked him, Neill lost out to Timothy Dalton. But, once again, if you go to this episode's webpage, you can check out his screen test in a YouTube video. Mel Gibson? MGM suggested him for the role, but Broccoli thought he wasn't British enough and maybe wasn't that great at accents, but that he was also maybe too short. Screenwriter Tom Mankiewicz, who wrote The Man with the Golden Gun and Live and Let Die, had said that the producers wanted a taller actor for 007. Mankiewicz said he was told, I don't want to make a Mel Gibson movie, I want to make a James Bond movie. And finally, Christopher Lambert, Highlander. Scottish character, but a very French guy. So much so, that the French accent prevented him from being chosen. I'm Matt Gourley, and I delivered that last line like an entertainment news reporter. Group 5, The Brosnan Years. 94 to 2002. Are you still listening? I'll bet a five of you are. Liam Neeson. Not interested in action movies. Don't want to do it. Never going to do action movies. Don't want to. But then he had a renaissance in the Taken movies, the Wolf Guy movie, the Tombstone movie, more Taken movies. He said he was offered the role 20 years ago but declined because his wife, the late Natasha Richardson, said at the time she would refuse to marry him if he accepted. There's just a lot going on in that one. Sean Bean who was in fact the second choice to be Bond at this time if Timothy Dalton didn't return. However, MGM overruled on both counts. Pierce Brosnan was given the part. I think Pierce Brosnan, for years, it was always known. They were just waiting for him. But they liked Sean Bean, and they gave him the part of Alec Trevelyan, the villain, which was rewritten from the mentor part that it was originally to become kind of a pseudo-bizarro Bond in Goldeneye. And finally... Ray Fiennes. He was also considered in 2004 for Daniel Craig's turn, but ended up with the role of M. Not to editorialize, but what is this, the Wall Street Journal? No, I can say whatever I want. I would have liked to see him as Bond. I think he's great. Just take a moment for Rafe. Take a Rafe moment. Take a tight Rafe 5. And then come back. I'm very glad he's M. Okay, we're almost done. Group six, the Craig years, 2006 to question mark, question mark, question mark. Hugh Jackman. Hugh Jackman revealed on an Australian TV show that he turned down the role of James Bond eight years ago. At the time, he was just about to do X-Men 2 and was like, I don't think it was right. But he said it was not an easy one to give up on. There's also Henry Cavill, who was 22 and thought he was too young. Clive Owen, which would be an interesting choice. And Jude Law. Marty? Yeah. If you didn't have Daniel Craig as James Bond, would you rather have Hugh Jackman, Henry Cavill, Clive Owen, or Jude Law? Ooh. Ah. Who's Henry Cavill? He's Superman. Um, God. I, God. The young me would say 
Jude Law or Hugh Jackman. Um, the adult me says Clive Owen. I'd have to go with Clive Owen too, I think, yeah. Now, that moves us on to Group 7, The Future. Is Daniel Craig done? Who will take over him? Do you think Daniel Craig is done? I think he's he wants to be done. I think he's sleepy, although I wouldn't mind one more with him. Me either, boy, I tell you. But let's say you had to choose between all of these prospective new James Bonds that are rumored to be buzzing about everywhere. Would you take an Idris Elba, a Tom Hardy, a Tom Hiddleston, a Dan Stevens? Who's Dan Stevens? He's from The Guest. He was Matthew in Downton Abbey. Okay, I'm going to rule him out. Okay. Um, I'd say, okay, so this again, I'm toward. I want Idris. Yeah. Oh, um, Idris. Is that how you say it? Maybe. What I, did you I, say? Well, I always hear it as Idris, but oh, I think Idris. I like that kind of spin on it. Idris. <laughs> okay. Idris Alba. But I will say, I used to want Tom Hiddleston because I like Night May May so much. Which you is, mean the night manager, yeah. but you call it Night May May. Okay. Yeah. Um, but I don't like all all this um, all this bull mania with <laughs> <laughs> with Taylor Swift and him. Now, what is it about that that rubs you so wrong? Well, they're showing off. And I don't buy it for a minute. Gals. I believe certain things should stay in the bedroom. <laughs> <laughs> so you're going to go with Idris Alba. Yes. Yeah, I'd have to agree. I think uh, I could see Tom Hiddleston playing Bond, but I'd like him to throw it back to the 60s and do a period piece with it. Otherwise, I think if, you're, if you've put this Daniel Craig trajectory out there, the only way to top that, or even come close as Idris Elba. I agree because he's the future, you know? We've seen a Tom Hiddleston type be Bond before. Who, who do you feel like is the Tom Hiddleston type? Pierce Brosnan. Yeah, you know it. That's my lady, Amanda Lund. Both beautiful boys. Thank you. You're welcome. Well, that's it, guys. Thanks for getting through this roller coaster of a ride of who would be James Bond. It's time to wrap up this segment, this podcast, and say goodbye until next we meet. But let's go out with another James Bond note. This is a well-trodden sketch from Super Ego Season 3 where James Bond talks to M, and M wants to know how British he is. This features myself and Jeremy Carter. Enjoy. Well, if there's nothing else, I'll just be off. Bond? Yes, M. Before you go, of course. Yes. Bond? Yes. I have a question to ask of you. Of course, sir. And of course this goes nowhere. Yes, sir. Bond? How British am I? I beg your pardon, sir. I mean, scale of one to ten, how British am I? <clears throat> well, I I would say you're incredibly British, sir. Yes, of course. Bond? Yes? You won't tell us so? No, sir. Bond? It's not easy for me to ask, but how British am I? The sun would never set on you, sir. I've said too much. Go on. That will be all. Of Bond? Course. Yes, sir. You see, it's always been difficult. Would you say I am commoner British or nearer to Ireland? Certainly the latter, sir. Yes, of course. On your way, Bond. Bond? Yes, Em. You've always been my favorite agent. Uh, thank you, sir. It's been a... Bond? Yes, sir. How British am I? Incredibly so, sir. Queen's English. Oh, Bond, do tell me. Victoria or Elizabeth? One or the sequel? Which is the most British? Well, Bond, if I tell you, it's not going to mean anything because to Because you're the most British. Well, which one is that, Bond? It's very important, and don't tell a soul. Victorian, sir. Oh, Bond, you've made me very happy. Very good, Bond, sir. Bond, yes. I have a mission for you. 
Yes, sir. How British am I, Bond? You're incredibly British, sir. I'm wearing a pinstripe bowler indoors. Your monocle couldn't be any cleaner. Bond, you made me so happy! Very good, sir. Do come along, Bond. What do you do for fun, Bond? Join me at the Blades Literary Club. We will play Shemandafar, have Gugum's sandwiches. I'm afraid that's... Bond, don't interrupt me when I'm being British. I get so few chances at it. I hate to see it spoiled. Sir... You are... Am I Hyde Park bound and handsome? Do say that. Sir. I've written you a few things to say. Well, this is highly irregular, It's a theme from Mary Poppins, is he? You will play Bert, and I, of course, will be Mary. Sir, it's written... Let me get the costumes. Sir, I really... Here's your chimney sweep and your cartoon penguin. You realize the Soviet Union is about to launch missiles. Oh, they're so Russian. Must we talk of them? Let's talk of fences. It's not polite to mention politics, Bond. That's not cricket. Because you wouldn't know because you're not as British as I am. Say it. I'm not as British as you are, sir. Most respectable, Bond. If I may, I Bond, have if I may. to... Please continue, sir. I need to know how British I am because I want to know how British I am, Bond. Do you see? More or less, sir. You know, during the Blitz, we were forced to stay fortnights under the tube. We had crusts of bread. What a deuce of a time. Very British time. Dashed to bits! My plus fours scuffed, Bond. My braces frayed. Stiff upper lip and all that. Stiff lower lip. Or everything's stiff over here, Bond. Yes, I understand it was quite difficult at the time, sir. Absolutely. Bond? Yes, This is a little off topic, but how British am I? Winston Churchill would be envious himself. Bond, do you mean it? I do, sir. Bond, you've made me so happy. You've made me incredibly behind on my schedule. Schedule? Jolly good, Bond. You keep that up, you might be as British as me one day. I say, wink, wink, you know. Look how I wink, with both eyes at the same time. Very British. Sir, if there's nothing else. There is, Bond. How British am I? You, sir, are the very pigeon shit on the cobblestones of Trafalgar Square, sir. If we have, in fact, established that I am indeed British, and the gamut running from H to Z, you see, I could have easily said A to Z, but I didn't, Bond, because I am exceedingly British, you see. Of course, sir. I must be going. And let's say we lined everyone in the colonies. We lined them up across the pond. Could have said ocean. Where would I fall within the spectrum, Bond? To the left or right of the Pimpernel? You are the Alpha. You are the Omega. Still a bit Greek, though, don't you think? I must be going, sir. You are the very tickety-tock of Big Ben's cock, sir. Good day. Well, whatever shall I have for high tea? Miss Manupani? Yes, sir? Chipotle Fujita wrap, I should think. This has been an Earwolf production. Executive produced by Scott Ackerman, Adam Sachs, and Chris Bannon. For more information and content, visit Earwolf.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Support comes from ServiceNow, the AI platform for business transformation. You've heard the hype around AI. The truth is, AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. 
ServiceNow is the platform that puts AI to work for people across your business, removing friction and frustration for your employees, supercharging productivity for your developers, providing intelligent tools for your service agents to make customers happier. All built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Visit servicenow.com slash AI for people to learn more. 